You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org. We're going to start with the book. Okay, we'll start with that. We'll devote no more than 30 minutes. Okay, if it's less, it's less, but that's fine. But we'll devote no more than 30 minutes to it. So we had three, three biographies due. The first three. And uh, then the introduction. The overachievers read the introduction. And uh, Did you? It's good. Is there anything from the introduction that's that stood out to you as like, whoa, that was cool. Tell us. Yeah, I want to hear. I want to hear, I want to hear from you guys. Oh, okay. Well, got it. You read it. Okay. Well, we'll begin with that. Anybody else read it? Simon, you got something for us? Oh, you got something? Yes. Yes. So they're on page thirteen. The five benefits that he mentions that come from the study of theology and the history of theology. He lays them out there for us. Mm-hmm. Very good. Number five, he addresses the issue of truth in, a, in an age in a world that has no idea what truth is anymore. Importance of truth. So that was good. Yes. Yes, exactly. So the 40, and he then said, well, I couldn't help myself, so I included two more Gregories in the same chapter. We'll get there. So 42, but yes, many made very profound contributions to which we are very thankful to the Lord. There are some others that are really wild cards, um, but they have been influential for good or, or in the case of some for bad. And then also pointing out that these are all people with strengths and weaknesses. Yes. Isn't that interesting, huh? Here we are 1900 years removed and it's the same discussions. Yep. So that was one of the early apologetical approaches was to speak of the good that Christians did to society and remind the the pagans around them, that that Christianity was a force for good in the Roman Empire. Okay, good, very good. Okay, so that was Justin Martyr. Anybody else? We had three. Who were they? Okay, we had Clement of Rome, Ignatius of Antioch, and then Justin Martyr. Okay, good, good. And you can see how he drew someone from each of those periods of time. All right, good. Did anybody, anything stand out to you from Clement of Rome? Right, so the apostolic succession, we're going to come back to that. It's a huge, very important topic. It's one of the, besides persecution, it's the other um, big idea from the first 325 years, the issue of authority and how is it established. So, good. Yep. Yes. Yes, it was instrumental in his conversion, people's willingness to die for an idea. There was another seed planted by Clement of Rome that was then later watered. Um, It had to do with the uh, clergy and the laity. Do you remember that, reading that? Okay. That's kind of comes out of apostolic succession, right? Apostolic succession is... Who wants to take a quick stab at defining it? 
We should define it if we're going to use the term. Go ahead. Yes, that's right. So it was the apostles to their direct disciples, to their direct disciples, to their direct disciples, and that was kind of the idea of apostolic succession. And, of course, the big problem uh, was, is does the authority of the apostles actually transfer to the disciples? What would you say? No. No. Where did the authority transfer to? Uh, scripture? Is that what you said? Qualified. Qualified men to apply their word. Right? So, why did they write things down? Why did the apostles write things down to pass on? Yeah. Exactly. We, it's still available to us 1,900 years later. Yeah. I mean, they were men. They knew, hey, you know what? Uh, we're getting old. In fact, um, beyond getting old, we're dying. All right. This is probably not going to work, so we're not going to pursue it. Other than to just to observe the fact that they began dying 30 years after Christ, and actually sooner than that, uh, James, a brother of John, was uh, killed in 40, AD 44. So that's, you know, 10 to 14 years, depending how you want to do the chronology. And so they realized they're not going to live forever, and the authority that God had entrusted to them, they needed to entrust into a reliable source that could carry forward, right? So you've all heard about the game Telephone, the party game telephone, right? Somebody tells you something, and then you pass it on to somebody else. They pass it on to somebody else, and you know, after four or five transmissions, the the message is all garbled. And that's what people use to try to argue against scripture. And we'll deal with that later. But they realize that if it, if if the authority that Christ had entrusted in them, they merely entrusted in another man, who then would later entrust it in another man, who would later entrust it in another man. This thing is going to go off the rails. So they wrote it down under inspiration of the Spirit of God. So the authority has now been transferred from them to the Scripture. And therefore, 2,000 years later, you open up your Bible and you can speak with the authority of Paul, the authority of Peter. Amazing, isn't it? Okay, good, excellent. That's Clement. Anybody else? That was Clement. Mm -hmm. Clement of Rome. Yes, that's right. His focus on unity of the church. Exactly right. Mm -hmm. Very important. He wrote to... Where did he write from? Do you remember? Did you pick that up in your reading? He wrote from Rome. To where? To Corinth. From Rome to Corinth, around A.D. 96. Okay? Church in Corinth was established 52. So we're, you know, we're, what is that? I'm not good at public math. That's 44 years later. A long generation. And he's addressing what problem in the Corinthian church? Respect for elders. Respect for elders, yes. And? Not staying true. Not staying true. And the resultant disunity. 
the resultant disunity in the church. Isn't that curious? What did Paul address when he wrote four times, actually, we only have two, but four times, at least three, probably four, to the church at Corinth, what did he address? Unity and respect for authority. They disrespected Paul repeatedly in Corinth. So that's what's called bad church. <laughs> and they didn't learn their lessons. But it is fascinating that you have an overseer, bishop of Rome, writing to a church in Corinth. All right, so. Now well, you can sort of, you can sort of see it. You get a little lower so you can see Corinth. Okay, so here's Corinth down here. All right, Rome's over here. They're not next door. They're not next door. So he wrote in support of the leadership of the Corinthian church in order that the people there would respect those in leadership over them and thus be unified. And he addressed it through apostolic succession. He addressed it with the issue of clergy and laity. He's the first one to use that terminology. Okay. Yes. That's right. He was Trinitarian. Before they'd invented the word. Yes. Okay. Good. Okay. Is there anything about him we don't like? Yes. Right. Yep. Mm-hmm. That's right. Okay. So he tried to import Old Testament priesthood structures into the New Testament church. Hmm? Okay, it's an error. A good conclusion. What I said was not necessarily what you heard. <laughs> yes, very good. Okay, how about Ignatius of Antioch? Anything stand out about him for you? Yes. Yes. That's right. So he wrote seven letters on his way to Rome to be executed. Okay. He was the bishop of Antioch, Syria, place where they were first called Christians. He was arrested and being sent to Rome to be tried and then executed, which subsequently was, died in 135. Along the way, he wrote seven letters. We have them. Pretty amazing. Wrote with a pastoral heart, as did Clement of Rome, not theologians, pastors. And he addressed the issue of the humanity of Christ in particular. He's very concerned about the humanity of Christ that it be upheld, particularly against the, the Greek philosophy of docetism. Right? Docetism comes from dokeo, it means to appear or to seem like. 
What's the problem with it? Denies the full humanity of Christ. Mm -hmm. It's rooted in Platonic philosophy. Remember we talked about that last time? The issue of the spiritual world is the real world and the, and the physical world is less. And so for someone steeped in that thinking, which that was the thinking of the known world at that time, the notion that God could take human flesh in full to himself, become a man, was um, just something they couldn't accept. So the heresy began to formulate that what really happened is Jesus, the man, just appeared. It was, it was God just appeared to be a man, but he wasn't really a man. And then as it spins out, they talk about it. The, um, the, the Christ spirit fleeing Jesus on the cross and, and those kinds of things. Okay? It leads into Gnostic heresies, which lead us to very ugly places. Okay? So 1 John directly addresses these issues. Right? So they went out from us because they were not of us. If they'd have been of us, they would have remained with us. Okay, so good. All right. And then we talked about Justin Martyr. What was Martyr's, well, Martyr wasn't his last name, by the way. It was Justin. Just like Christ is not Jesus' last name. Title. But what did what is Justin known for? Philosophy. The use of philosophy. Yes. Yes. So he was attempting to integrate Greek philosophy in which he was highly trained with the scripture in an attempt to provide an apologetic, a defense, apologia, and a defense for the, the, um, the truth of the Christian faith. So he concocted this idea of the logos being the wisdom of God that proceeds from within the supreme being, Right? And, and is the means by which that supreme being creates the physical world. He's trying to shield God from contact with the physical world because he's influenced by Platonic philosophy. Okay. He went so far as to consider Plato himself to be a proto-Christian, an early Christian. Right? Plato lived about 400 and something B.C., for. 20-something. Okay. Could Plato be a Christian? No. No. Okay. So, we can thank Justin Martyr for his valiant attempts at, at um, providing a reasonable, intelligible defense of the Christian faith to the intellectual class of his day, answering the charges against the church. So we're grateful for that, but his methodology was not good. 
and the trajectory of it, to use that analogy, you know, he may have hit close to the bullseye at 25 yards, but there's a lot of downrange damage that comes for that. And it, and it confused the church for a couple of hundred years. Yes. Yes. Yes, there are unforeseen consequences. Unforeseen consequences. So that's a, that is a great caution for all of us. To just be, you know, circumspect. To, to take a lesson from Calvin. Teach your mouth to say, I do not know. That's right. The Apostle Paul comes to Athens and addresses the, the elite there on Mars Hill, right? The Areopagus. And preaches the gospel to them. And it is instructive to read Acts 17 in that approach. How he does that. Um, but I think about his... Um, his words in First Corinth or First Yeah First Corinthians chapter one, where he says that the gospel is foolishness to man. Right? The Greeks search for wisdom, the Jews uh, demand signs, and I give them Jesus Christ and him crucified. <laughs> right? So I don't give either of them what they're asking for, what they're demanding, because we don't present the gospel on the grounds of of verification established by the unbeliever. They don't get to set the ground rules. All right, good. Good job. So for next week, three more. We'll get better at it. So we're going to, uh, next week, we've got Irenaeus due. Love him. Man. He ran out of a bathhouse naked. Um, no, I'm sorry, that was John. That was John. Ran out naked. And because a Gnostic was there. He wouldn't, he wouldn't stay in a sauna with a Gnostic. Yeah. And we got Tertullian, I think Clement of Alexandria. Good. Okay, good. Very good. All right. So, persecution. Sorry, edifying topic for tonight. Persecution. I'm on page five at the bottom to get a running start at it again. By the way, we have um, that kind of background on Rome from last week. I made 50 copies, so it's here. If anybody, I'm going to take a break. I'm going I'm to use some advanced teaching technique and give you a five-minute break here and... In another 15 minutes or so, I've been told that 45 minutes and then a five-minute break, people will be more attentive. We'll find out. Okay, But anyway, you can get it at that point if you like. And there's also uh, a roster. If you're interested in a roster to connect with people and so forth, it's here. Okay, All right. So here we go. Let's talk about persecution. So five on the bottom. As we spoke last time, the hostility of the Jewish nation towards Christ continued to boil over following the crucifixion to the place where uh, they lost all sensibility and the zealots basically controlled the nation. And they decided to go to war with Rome. It began in Galilee in 66 and then proceeded south until finally... 
Jerusalem was surrounded and eventually sacked, the temple destroyed, not a stone left on another in fulfillment of the prophecy of Jesus in, in Matthew 24. All right, we talked about all of that. They cleaned up the last few survivors at Masada. At Masada. Why? Because uh, uh, Rome was a large empire, as you can kind of see. Rome was a large empire. How do you, how do you police such a large empire? Um, one of the most important things in a Roman mind was law and order, ranked very highly for them. And so you just don't have enough soldiers to put them everywhere. And so their approach was, if there was a rebellion, they would crush it. It didn't matter how much it cost them. And it didn't matter how ins insignificant the rebellion was. In their minds, no rebellion was insignificant. It could not be left unpunished. And so, yeah, they built a retaining wall around the base of Masada. And they spent months and months and months, built a siege ramp all the way up it. it finally breached the walls. And the night before, the 70 or so... Jewish uh, survivors are all committed suicide rather than be taken prisoner by the Romans. Okay? So strategically, you'd go, that doesn't make any sense. You don't do all of that to kill, you know, just forget them. But you could not defy Rome and be unpunished. And so they ruled through terror. That was the iron boot of the Rome. Okay? So the Christian church fled Jerusalem when they saw the Roman armies beginning to encircle the city and in fulfillment of what they understood Luke 21, 20 to 21 to be saying, and that cemented the breach between Jewish Christianity and Gentile Christianity. From that point forward, uh, the church became predominantly Gentile and, and then eventually virtually entirely Gentile. Okay? So... The history of the book of Acts is a history of Jewish persecution of the church. You read it through, and what you see in the book of Acts repeatedly is that it is the Jews that are persecuting, it's the Romans that are defending them and saying, I don't, I don't find anything wrong with them. I mean, yeah, they're having some argument about some guy that, that uh, you know, we say is dead, and somebody in Paul says he's alive, but what is that to me? And so Rome defended them, and, and Israel, the Jews, the unbelieving Jews, persecuted. Well, that flipped with the Jewish war. Because prior to that time, Christianity grew up under the umbrella of Judaism. Rome allowed Judaism. And uh, as long as they abided by certain standards, then Rome was willing to let Judaism operate as a, as a cocoon within society, keeping to themselves and uh, not entering into general Roman life, but as long as they weren't a pest, they were willing to let them be themselves. And Christianity was seen by Rome at that time as a, as a subset of Judaism. And so it enjoyed this derivative protection. Well, when Israel went to war with Rome, the gloves came off. And so there's no more favorable thoughts towards Israel and the Jewish people and nor to the Christians. So what happens is the persecution of the Christians begins. And it came about in, in ten waves over a period of a couple of hundred years. So, why? Why did they, specifically, why did they persecute the Christians? What were their reasons? Well, here on, on page six, you know, I list first, second, third, 
and finally. So four general reasons, but let me let me tease that out a little more specifically. The first was uh, various pagan myths about Christians. So, for example, they were accused of cannibalism. They were accused of cannibalism. And they were accused of cannibalism because, to the, to the uh, pagan mind, when they got together, they did what? They did communion. They ate his body and drank his blood. What does that sound like to you? Yes, exactly. Okay? They were accused of... Oh, and let, me, let me back up and say this. Their, their meetings were closed. They were closed meetings. They were, they were not... They didn't put advertisements in, you know, out on the local bulletin board and saying we're having a worship service at such and such a time. You know, everybody come. They were a slave people for the most part. They met at night and they met privately. And so it made it easier in that sense for, for slanderers to slander them and have it to gain some traction. So they were accused of cannibalism. They were also accused of sexual orgies. And those derived out of the love feast. Right? The love feast was attached to the Lord's Supper. And it was called the agape of the love feast. And so to the debased mind, that spelled sexual orgy. And so they were accused of that. They were accused of being homebreakers, homewreckers. So what, what do you think might cause that kind of a accusation to gain some traction? Yes, bingo. That's right. Wife is converted. Husband, not so much. She now is being drawn away from him to, to worship, or could be vice versa. Uh, more likely the, the women than the men, but could be vice versa. And so that brought tension into the home. And, um, and so that was not viewed as, as um, favorable towards society. Okay, so homebreakers. They were accused of atheism. Okay, this one you got to think about for a moment, but they were accused of atheism because they worshipped an invisible God. Roman society was characterized by idolatry, idols. And so they worshipped this invisible God. They, and so they were accused of being atheists. They were accused of political disloyalty. <coughs> political disloyalty because they refused to sacrifice to Caesar. So, it was compulsory for every Roman citizen to once a year offer a, a pinch of incense on Caesar's altar and to repeat the words, Caesar is Lord. It was a, it was a way to enforce societal conformity. Rome didn't care who or what you worshipped you know, the rest of the year. You just had to swear allegiance to, the, to Rome and the spirit of Rome once a year. Your refusal to do that was considered disloyal and seditious. And, of course, the Christians wouldn't do it. Because why? Say again? That's it. Right? If Jesus is Lord, and He is, then... 
Caesar can't be Lord. And so they refused. They refused the, the citizenship test. Kind of interesting, isn't it? Okay. They were also accused of, of um, what was called incendiarism. And um, that's basically the idea that they were going to destroy. It came from Peter's words in, in 2 Peter 3.10 about the world is reserved for fire. And so they kind of ran with that idea and said, these people, these people are going to burn the place down. And we can't have people running around talking about burning, burning everything down. So you kind of put all of these charges together, and the truth of the matter is most people are willing to believe the worst about somebody. That's kind of how human nature is. And so you package these things in the right way, and it doesn't take a lot to, to gin up hostility to the, towards these people. They don't, they don't make good neighbors. I mean, are they good citizens in a true sense? Absolutely. But they... They don't participate in society. They don't fit in. They're weird. And consequently, they're probably dangerous. And so those were the kinds of charges that were used to um, um, promote public hostility. Okay, what I have for you here is a um, piece of graffiti that was found, I believe it was in Rome, uh, on the wall, it was uncovered, and uh, it's the Greek is um, scratched out. Looks like sixth grade writing, but what it says is, "Alexa Menos worships his god." So, Alexa Menos on the left, and the portrayal of his god that he worships on the right, and you see the body of a man and the head of a donkey. On a cross. That kind of sums up what they thought. Right? So, a piece of graffiti that has survived for nearly 2,000 years. So, persecution. We've gotten a little flavor of the general atmosphere of Rome and the Roman citizens at that time. For the, the Christian faith, recognizing that Christianity, well, I won't show you, I won't dig for it, but, but Christianity had moved out through the Mediterranean world and had made remarkable progress in really a very short period of time and was threatening Roman stability, at least in their minds. Persecution officially broke out under Nero. Okay, so we're at page six here, under Nero, who was criminally insane. And um, it's, I think, reasonably well enough documented to be able to assert that uh, Nero himself, through his agents, was responsible for the fire of Rome. So what happened was, uh, a fire broke out one night in Rome, and, and Rome was a densely populated city, and its buildings were wood, wooden structures. And the fire broke out and burned uncontrollably, 
by the time it finally burned itself out, 10 out of the 14 districts in Rome were completely flattened. So there are some who say that it was uh, the fire was begun by Nero's agents in order to clear out some housing projects that were in the way of, a, of an expansion of his uh, estate that he wanted to do, and it got away from him. And I think that's probably accurate. But he had a major problem on his hand because when three-quarters of the city burns down, uh, people are not happy, and, and they are looking for vengeance. And so in order to deflect opinion from himself and escape the suspicion for the burning of the city of Rome, he placed the blame upon the Christians. And Christians were arrested, and they were they were tried in sham trials. They were tortured until they confessed, and then they were executed, often by crucifixion. He, um, he lit his gardens at night with crucified Christians dipped in pitch that he would light them on fire. The man was a monster by any, any measure. Uh, Tacitus, who was a, uh, the foremost, foremost historian of that period, a Roman historian, lived 8056 to 120, and he wrote the, the following with regard to the um, Neronian persecution of 8064. And he wrote, But all the endeavors of men, all the emperor's largesse, that's his giving gifts and so forth, and the propitiation of the gods did not suffice to allay the scandal or banish the belief that the fire had been ordered. And so to get rid of this rumor, Nero set up as the culprits and punished with the utmost refinement of cruelty, a class hated for their abominations, who are commonly called Christians. Christus, from whom their name is derived, was executed at the hands of the procurator Pontius Pilate. This, by the way, is the first uh, secular attestment to the crucifixion of Christ. In the reign of Tiberius, Checked for the moment, this pernicious superstition again broke out, not only in Judea, the source of the evil, but even in Rome, that receptacle for everything that is sordid and degrading from every quarter of the globe, which there finds a following. Accordingly, arrest was first made of those who confessed to being Christians. Then on their evidence, an immense multitude was convicted, not so much on the charge of arson as because of hatred of the human race. So they were convicted of hatred of the human race. Um, besides being put to death, they were made to serve as objects of amusement. They were clad in the hides of beasts and torn to death by dogs. Others were crucified. Others set on fire to serve to illuminate the night when daylight failed. Nero had thrown open his grounds for the display and was putting on a show in the circus where he mingled with the people in the dress of a charioteer or drove about in his chariot. All this gave rise to a feeling of pity, even towards men whose guilt merited the most exemplary punishment, for it was felt that they were being destroyed not for the public good, but to gratify the cruelty of an individual. That is the opinion of Tacitus, the Roman historian who lived through that time. So, 64 to 68, the, the Neronian persecution. Now, it was a localized persecution. And I'm gonna, you're going to hear me emphasize this a number of times here. It was localized, meaning it was basically confined to Rome. So as it came down on them, as you might expect, many fled. And they fled to other places in the empire, and they were safe by fleeing. 
And then there was a, a period of relative peace for 20 years or so. And then there was another uh, persecution that broke out under Domitian, the Roman Emperor Domitian. And um, that is probably having to do with his fear of rivals to the throne and the Christian influence on his rivals. By this time, Christ, some Christians had risen to places of prominence within society. And so he was a suspicious man. He thought the Christians were allied, allied against him. And so that instigated his persecution. And it was under his persecution that John was exiled to Patmos. Right? So as we read about in uh, the book of Revelation. Following him... Again, not much of a respite there as it went right into Trajan's. And uh, there it was, it was declared religio illicia, so illegal religion. Christians were persecuted when found, but not actively sought. Again, localized. So when they found one, they would, they would subject them to persecution, but they weren't hunting for them. So I'll read you here just a, an excerpt from... Uh, from Pliny, who was the governor of Bithynia at the time. Now, Bithynia is a section of Turkey that borders on the Black Sea. Just up here. Okay? So it's up there. So he wrote, and he is writing to Trajan, the emperor. He said, you have taken the right line, my dear Pliny. So this is Trajan writing back in examining the cases of those denounced to you as Christians. For no hard and fast rule can be laid down of universal application. They are not to be sought out. If they are informed against and the charges proved, they are to be punished with this reservation, that if anyone denies that he is a Christian and actually proves it, that is, by worshiping our gods, he shall be pardoned as a result of his recantation, however, uh, however suspect he may have been with regard to the past. Pamphlets published anonymously should carry no weight in any charge whatsoever. So there were anonymous pamphlets circulating, accusing neighbors of being Christians and that sort of idea. Okay? They constitute a very bad precedent and also are out of keeping with this age. So again, Rome was about law and order, and so they recognized that, that uh, innuendo and anonymous uh, charges and those kinds of things are not a, a way to constitute any kind of court of law. And so they're, they're to be ignored. So that was the persecution that occurred during that period of time, roughly 20 years. Following uh, Trajan, we had uh, Hadrian. And Hadrian was a, a military general, right? He, his uh, troops formed a wall across England to seal off uh, Scotland because they were too wild <laughs> for them to deal with. So they built Hadrian's wall. You can see it today, foundations of it at least. And um, he, was a, he was a man, a no-nonsense kind of guy, and he had no patience for Christians. No patience whatsoever. And so, as I say, the legal grounds on which he persecuted are, are somewhat obscure, but uh, the Christians rumored to be cannibals, atheists, and incestuous, and that was enough for him. He just had no patience for these kinds of people, and so uh, he encouraged the suppression of them by persecution. But again, it wasn't empire-wide. Still not empire-wide. We're followed by Pius, and he just continued his, that of his predecessor, and again, localized and sporadic. 
Okay. We have Marcus Aurelius, so the great philosopher, emperor, and for him, the idea of the immortality of the soul was such a, an abhorrent idea that it was reason enough to persecute somebody who held that kind of a stupid idea. It's just no patience for them again. Uh, Septimus Severus, and um, here the persecution begins to ratchet up. And this is perhaps was in response to the Montanist excesses, and we're going to get to Montanism here in a few weeks probably. Uh, but in, in response, let me just tell you this, Montanist was a very, what's uh, uh, the word I'm looking for, kind of um, charismatic outbreak. And it created a lot of turmoil in the church and in society. And so uh, they enacted strict laws to stop the spread of Christianity. They just did not want these crazy people promulgating all over, all over the world. Okay? So they increased their persecution. But it really, really heated up under Decius. He came to the throne by military coup. He was a suspicious man. He was jealous of the, of the growing Christian influence and the shrinking pagan temples of his day. In other words, Christianity is winning in, in the marketplace of ideas. And uh, he just could not tolerate that. And so he... Um, during this time as well, Rome suffered a whole series of military setbacks on the, on the frontiers with Germany, and he needed a place to lay the blame for this, and so it was laid on the Christians. This was the first empire-wide persecution. So this one was a rough one. In fact, yeah, the authorities, under his persecution, the authorities executed the bishops of Rome, Antioch, and Jerusalem. So they rounded up the, the leaders of, uh, of the church in Rome, Antioch, and Jerusalem, executed them. Uh, he ordered all the inhabitants of the empire must offer sacrifice to the gods and obtain an, an official certificate stating that they had done so. Christians who refused, such as Origen, were imprisoned and tortured. Many died. However, large numbers of Christians gave in and either offered sacrifices to the gods or purchased a fake certificate by bribing the, the uh, magistrates. And so they would receive a fake vaccine pass. No, sorry. <laughs> I couldn't resist, sorry. A, a fake certificate saying that they had offered the, um, the required um, sacrifice. So you can just see that the church is is um, beginning to wilt under the pressure. Okay, people are afraid, and so there there's no place to run anymore, and it's really it's getting real, <laughs> and so people were looking for ways out, and many took them, and that creates a lot of problems that we're going to see the church father Cyprian has to deal with when the persecutions finally end. And the people who, who either offered the pinch of sacrifice and, and proclaimed that Caesar is Lord, you know, fingers behind their back crossed, or purchased a fake certificate that said they'd offered it when they didn't, they wanted back into the Christian church. And those that had remained true 
many of whom were pretty busted up from torture, weren't so inclined to let them in that easily. And that created a major problem. We'll get to it. Following uh, Decius was uh, Valerian. And uh, he, at the beginning, only confiscated church property and banished the clergy. Uh, later, he resorted to bloodshed himself. Right? And then the last and worst of them was under Diocletian. So let's see. We got a picture of Diocletian. I'll show him to you. There he is. Doesn't look like the kind of guy who uh, takes no for an answer, does he? Okay, that's Diocletian. The worst and the bloodiest of the persecutions occurred under Diocletian. All right? He also rounded up the scriptures to be burned and destroyed. He recognized that the holy book created the church, as it were. And so it was his brilliance to round up the scriptures and destroy them. And so we don't know what was destroyed. Simon, yes, yes, very much. Thank you. It's exactly right. By God preventing an empire-wide persecution with a focus on destroying the scriptures for a few hundred years, by that time the New Testament had circulated through the entire empire. There were sufficient copies preserved that we have it today. But yeah, it was a serious attempt at wiping out the word of God as an attempt, as a way to destroy the church of God. Um, let's see. You flip the page, page seven. Fox's Book of Martyrs. If you've never read it, I would commend it to you to read. Probably not bedtime reading. Okay, but it is good reading. It's a, it's, it's a book you ought to read once in your life. But here's a, just an excerpt from it that describes what persecution was like under Diocletian. Racks, scourges, swords, daggers, crosses, poison, and famine were made use of in various parts to dispatch the Christians. And invention was exhausted to devise tortures against such as had no crime, but thinking differently from the votaries of superstition. The city of Phrygia, consisting entirely of Christians, was burned and all inhabitants perished in the flames. Tired with the slaughter, at length several governors of provinces represented to the imperial court the impropriety of such conduct. Hence many were respited from execution, but though they were not put to death, as much as possible was done to render their lives miserable. Many of them having their ears cut off, their noses slit, their right eyes put out, their limbs rendered useless by dreadful dislocations, and their flesh seared in conspicuous places with red-hot irons. Don't read it at night. Okay? It was brutal. It was brutal. Christians had to have a way to identify one another. And one of the ways that they identified one another when they would meet in the marketplace is that they would use their toe and they would draw in the dirt. It's called an ictus. Right? Just a little picture of a fish because the word ictus in the Greek means fish. And it conjured up, you know, the New Testament stories about the men being fishermen and, and all of those kinds of things. All right, I want to make you fishers of men. 
But it's also, it just so happens that the first letter of the Greek words that spell Jesus Christ, Son of God, Savior, right? Ichthus, spell fish. And so it became a perfect symbol or way to identify one another. And so it has passed down to us, and it, it's many of the ancient churches have the sign of the fish. Right? So that's where that originates. That's what it means. Okay. Diocletian. Brutal, but brilliant. He was a brilliant administrator. And by this time, the Roman Empire was so unwieldy. Alright, we'll just we'll put him back up here so you can look at him. But you get a picture here of the Roman Empire. It stretches from England, Ireland, all the way through, you know, into the Middle East, and then around the border of North Africa and all through Turkey and modern-day Greece and Rome and, and the, um, the, Stan, the former Stans nations and up into France and part of Germany. A massive empire, about 3,500 miles across. Because it's so large, it, it was difficult to be administrated by one man. I mean, he had a bureaucracy, of course, but just the issues that were coming to him constantly, the borders were being pressed by the, the Germanic tribes, so there was constant warfare on the borders, and so um, the nation's treasury was being depleted, and he needed to find a solution. So his solution was to reorganize the empire into an east-west configuration. There was a now going to be an eastern empire and a western empire. And it was going to be ruled by four men. And so in the west, there would be two, and in the east, there would be two. The, there was a, an emperor, as it were, who was called Augustus, and then he had underneath him a Caesar, who would rule a, a, a smaller section of the east or west part of the empire. And then in the east, the same thing, an Augustus and a Caesar. And they were designed to serve 20 years and then retire. And then the Caesar would move up to Augustus, bring in a new Caesar underneath them, and then that was his plan for this kind of rotating leadership. And it brought a great degree of stability to the empire by that time, because Many of the Caesars had come to power prior to that by arranging the murder of one another or having the Praetorian Guard do it for them and select the leaders. And uh, some stuff just gets really close to home. <laughs> but in any case, uh, that was his scheme to run the empire. So, at that time, in the time of the persecution, he was in the east. And he had underneath him as his Caesar, a man by the name of Galerius, who absolutely hated Christians, absolutely hated them, and was really the driving force uh, behind Diocletian's persecution. Okay? He was, the, he was the, the one who hated them the most. In the West, there was uh, the, um, the Augustus was uh, Maximian, and underneath him, and, and you don't have to have all this down, I'm just kind of trying to give you a flavor for it. There was a man by the name of Constinius who had a son, and this is where it gets important, who was a general in charge of 
of England and part of France um, by the name of Constantine. Okay, So he is important, and he enters in. So, uh, as you see here, the Edict of Toleration in 311, Galerius was on his deathbed. He had failed to extinguish Christianity, and he had a bit of a change of heart, and he issued this Edict of Toleration from his deathbed. And in it, it said, among other things, in return for our tolerance, Christians will be required to pray uh, to their God for us, for the public good and for themselves, so that the state may enjoy prosperity and they may live in peace. So it was kind of at the end of his life, on his deathbed, he, he uh, stopped the persecution and said, just pray for me and for the empire and so forth. Now, in the West, uh, when uh, Constantius uh, died in 306, his son, his armies, uh, Constantine was the general, his army said, we want you to be the next emperor. And so he and his army began to march east towards Rome. And on the way, to, uh, with a much smaller force than he was meeting there at Rome, uh, on the night before the battle, he says that uh, the Lord appeared to him in a vision. Let me get his picture up there so you can get a good idea what he looks like. Looks like he belongs in a football hall of fame, doesn't he? He's got a serious neck on him. <laughs> this is Constantine. The night before the battle, and, and, and let me say this, he was a worshiper of the sun god. Right? The sun god. The sun god was a, was a pagan religion that had cropped up sometime earlier that um, believed that the sun was a symbol of the one supreme god. So it was a form of paganism, but instead of having a, like a pantheon of gods, it believed in a one supreme god represented by the sun in the sky. And so he was a sun god worshiper. So he says that the Lord appeared to him and, and um, spoke to him these words. Oh, I can see them right here. Well, not very good, you can't. Uh, in this you shall conquer. And appeared with these two signs, Kai and Rho. Okay? So Kai is an X, Rho looks like a P, and they are the first letters of the word, the Greek word for Christ. He believed that this God had spoken to him and said that in the name of Christ, he would prevail. So that night, he had the, the, uh, the abbreviation painted on the shields of all of his soldiers. And they entered into battle. They met uh, Maxentius, his opponent, uh, at what was called the Melvian Bridge, which is a bridge over the Tiber's River that leads to Rome. And he met him there in battle. And was and prevailed, prevailed in battle against a far superior force, and in fact, um, uh, Maxentius himself uh, he fell into the river and drowned. 
Alto. His armor, I'm sure, took him down, and he drowned. So Constantine, with his army, marched into Rome and was declared the emperor. He negotiated uh, an agreement with his eastern rival to put a full stop to the persecution, to return the churches and their seminary or cemeteries and other properties to the Christians. Later in 320, his eastern rival, Lincenti, Lin, Lis, Lic, Ennius, L-I-C-I-N-I-U-S, Lixenius, began persecuting the church again, and Constantine went to battle, went to war with his eastern rival, and um, prevailed, captured him, had him executed um, because of his persecution of the church. So, Constantine is an interesting character, and the reason he's an interesting character is because he's a man of contradictions. Man of contradictions. The, the question that always sits out there is, was his conversion real? Did he really become a Christian? There's evidence that he did, and there's evidence that he didn't. So, for example, he wasn't baptized until on his deathbed. Okay, So on his deathbed he was baptized. Now that probably has to do with the prevailing understanding of baptism at that point, which is that it remitted sin. And so he wanted to wait until the end. Uh, he never submitted to Christian instruction. He considered himself the earthly head of the church. His, his mother, Helena, interestingly, traveled to Palestine and erected churches over all of the holy sites from the first century. And so when you go to Israel today, you, can, you know where things actually were because of Helena erecting these churches over these sites to preserve them. And how did she know where the sites were? Simple. When Rome destroyed Jerusalem in 70, they defiled all the holy sites by building pagan temples there. And so it was easy for her to go around and say, pagan temple there, okay, that's a Christian holy site. There's another one, there's another one, there's another one. And so they identified them all in God's good providence. And so you can go to Israel today and you can, with very good confidence, know where these things were and it happened because of the work of Helena. All right? So he's described as a strong, handsome man whose physical presence always had a very positive and imposing impact on others, sharp insight into people's characters and motives, an ability to strike swiftly and precisely in war and politics, overflowing energy, which he devoted unselfishly to the affairs of the empire. The brightest feature of his moral character was his generosity with money, his sense of justice as a ruler, and his purity in matters of sex. All his Christian biographers gloried in the third of these virtues so rare in politicians of that time and ours. However, he was also vain, flashy about his personal appearance, easy prey to flattery, and increasingly tyrannical as his power increased. He could be extremely suspicious about the loyalty of friends, relatives, and servants, and 
In the tragic case of his son Crispus, he had him executed because he was suspicious that he was seeking his throne. So he is a man of contradictions, Constantine. Right? But it was under Constantine that Roman persecution ended. And so, if for no other reason, we can be very grateful for that. Page 8 at the top, and we'll finish it out here. By 8380, so we're talking, what is that? That's uh, 60 years, roughly, a little less than 60 years after Constantine, Emperor Theodosius made Christianity the only legal religion in the empire. So it went from illegal religion, persecution, torture, burn the scriptures, take their property, hound them like wild animals, to they are now declared the, the legal religion of the empire. In other words, if you're a pagan, you have to become a Christian. And you can, you can, we can read a piece of his declaration here where he says, it is our will that all the peoples we rule shall practice that religion which the divine Peter the Apostle transmitted to the Romans. We shall believe in the single deity of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit under the concept of equal majesty and of the Holy Trinity. We command that those persons who follow this rule shall embrace the name of Catholic Christians. The rest, however, who we adjudge demented and insane, shall sustain the infamy of heretical dogmas. Their meeting places shall not receive the name of churches, and they shall be smitten, first by divine vengeance, and secondly by the retribution of our own initiative, which we shall assume in accordance with divine judgment. Don't you love it? The persecuted now became the persecutors. And that is probably the biggest um, problem to have arisen out of Constantine and the establishment of Christianity as the official religion of the Roman Empire. Because at that point, you were, you were a Christian, or you were persecuted. And so you can imagine there was, uh, they had a massive revival of sorts. Okay? Reminds me of an old cartoon of a, of a uh, crusader on his horse with his, his lance um, pointing in the chest of a, of a heretic. And uh, the heretic, the little bubble, says, Tell me more about your Jesus. I'm very interested. <laughs> so, yes, it, it established what um, for a thousand, more than a thousand years prevailed, which is a state church paradigm. They became one and the same. And it wasn't until uh, the Anabaptists that that notion was challenged. Okay, and that was a direct result of Constantine. All right, so this is probably as good a place as any, I think, to say that's enough persecution for the night. If there are any questions, we will entertain them. We have a question in the back. No, I think it's Jewish. The persecution spoken of in Hebrews is a Jewish persecution, I think. Yeah, no, no, it would have been... Um, it would have been brought upon them uh, through the synagogue system and the temple. So prior to the, prior to the destruction of the temple, the Sadducees 
I had a, a fair amount of authority and uh, the synagogue, of course, as well. So to, to be put out of the synagogue would be to be cut off from all social interaction, business opportunity, all of those kinds of things. So I think that's what's being referred to there. <laughs> well, it certainly provided fuel for Augustine and his amillennial approach, yes. Yes. Yes, the combination of church and state is, is uh, no small idea. And has led to untold mischief. Untold mischief. You cannot uh, legislate conversion. It is the work of the Spirit, right? The Spirit blows where He wishes. It is the work of the Spirit that regenerates and causes one to be born into the kingdom of God. And so the problem becomes is when the church and the state are interwoven together like they were under Constantine and for the next thousand years, uh, what happens is you, you have no ability to do church discipline and purify the church. You have no ability to put them out of it. The other problem comes when you combine the idea of church and, and state together is then a, an ecclesiastical crime, if I can say it that way, meaning a, a transgression of faith, a, a failure to believe rightly becomes a civil problem and subject to civil penalty. And then the, the entire weight of the magistrate comes down on you. And what is the outcome of that? Burning people at the stake? Calvin executing Michael Servetus? Right? It's, it's problematic. It's problematic. Right? So... Do you have a right to believe how you want in your conscience? That's the question. And the answer is yes and no. Eternally, no, you don't. Temporally, temporally, that's where you have to ask. Can we hold an opinion contrary to the prevailing belief system? Or will we be persecuted? We'll explore this a lot because it's a big issue. It's a big issue. Okay. Leads to what's called the state church and the free church. Okay. You are sitting, by the way, in a free church building. Okay. So, but under a state church, um, the taxes support the church. The clergy is paid through the taxation of the people. Yep. And it's all because of Constantine. But if it hadn't been for Constantine, the ending of Diocletian's persecution, the church might not have survived. I mean, literally. It might have been exterminated. I think we'll see him in heaven. That's my guess. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting kootenaichurch.org. 
We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.